0: We now approach the throne of grace. Uh, let's, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we look on our lives, we must confess that we are nothing but a grace case. From beginning to end, your grace is our theme. We do not deserve any of your favor, but you freely give it to us in the freeness of your grace. We pray now as we open up your word that we would be enriched and strengthened to go out from here with boldness and joy. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, it's a great day, um, a great day um, in the year of our church. It's a great day just in the history of our church. It's Reformation Sunday. Uh, It's on this day that we uh, celebrate and rejoice in the goodness of God in in restoring our view of the gospel. The gospel in the Middle Ages wasn't lost completely, but it was hindered, it was clouded by the traditions of men. Uh, but on this day, we, uh, we think back to them with fond affection. We thank God for them. For it was through them that the truths of Scripture were, were revealed and restored again and afresh by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Um, this evening, um, my theme is, by grace alone. And it just it'd be helpful for us to start out maybe with a little definition. Um, God's grace is God's unmerited favor to us in salvation. Uh, uh, God saves us. Um, not based on any merit of anything we do, um, we we are we are given God's grace, God's favor, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to God's grace. Um, this is not something new uh, that the Reformation discovered. This is this is a very biblical understanding. Titus three four says, "When the goodness and loving kindness." Of God, our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then Ephesians 2 8 says something similar. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no man may boast. This is not a, a Reformation understanding. And I'll I'll say another thing. This is not a, a New Testament only understanding. It, this is this is these are all doctrines that we find throughout Scripture um, that that declare themselves to us all over the place. And for example, I would ask you to now turn in your Bibles with me to Second Kings, Second Kings chapter five, which will be our our, our passage for tonight. And tonight, my, my aim is to help us better understand the grace of God towards us in salvation through through the character, through the illustration of Naaman. Um, we could go to many places in the Bible to learn about God's grace. But I think the, the story of Naaman is particularly precious and dear to us, as we will learn about tonight. I'm going to propose to you just six lessons, six lessons of God's grace that we can uh, find from this story of Naaman. Our, our first lesson this evening is the unexpected setting of God's grace. The the unexpected setting of God's grace. Uh, 2 Kings 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 1 says this, uh, Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, w- was a great man. And with his master, And in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. The first person we meet in our in our story surprises us a bit. This is this is not someone that that I would think should receive God's uh, great grace. He is a man in high position. He is not lowly, he is not humble, he is elevated, he is mighty, he is great, he is a great man. Or you could put that literally, he is an important man. The kind of man that a great man like the king of Syria would want to keep nearby. Close, you always want to keep great men near you. And what's most interesting about Naaman was why he was great, why he was so valuable. It is unexpected. Yahweh, the God of Israel, had given Syria favor through him. That's an uncomfortable picture to think about. God, the God of the Israelites, is helping Israel's greatest enemy. Is giving him victory. Some of those victories could be against Israel. Why is God doing this? Why is God giving him favor? Ah, but, but, of course, then we're relieved in the second half of verse 1 um, to see that he also had some problems. Oh, thank goodness. Uh, verse 1, verse 1, Yes, he was a mighty man of valor, but, ah, yes, he was a leper. Ah, to be a leper was to be spiritually and physically unclean. Um, leviticus 13 through 14 gives all of these rules and regulations for how the leprous person is to be outside of the camp if you are a leper you are outside of god's favor outside of god's grace and this word leprosy is really a, a general term probably that Scripture uses to refer to a vast number of skin diseases. What is commonly referred to today as leprosy or known as Hansen's disease uh, may or may not be in view here. If, if, uh, if Naaman has Hansen's disease, he is going to lose feeling in his limbs. Um, he is going to become increasingly debilitated and soon he's not going to be able to walk anymore and maybe he'll lose parts of his limbs as he runs into things. Uh, but we don't know. It doesn't really say. It just says his skin was white. Uh, verse, uh, Leviticus 13 really doesn't speak about that disease either. We, we, we can say this about Naaman. This is some sort of skin disease that is causing Naaman a great amount of difficulty and discomfort. He might be experiencing some joint pain. He might have some difficulty in executing his work. And it, obviously, it's, it's more than just a rash or a discoloration. I mean, after all, both the king of Syria and Naaman himself go to great and expensive lengths to get rid of this disease. This is a serious problem that's hindering Naaman, perhaps a life-threatening problem and he's seeking a cure now, of course to to an Israelite. Um, Naaman would be also a very unexpected recipient of God's grace. I mean, after all, he's the general of the, of the army that's constantly causing you all this havoc and, and woe. He is a leper, someone on the outside of God's grace, outside of God's favor. And I'll give you one more reason why a typical Israelite would not like this Naaman taking center stage in our story. He is also a Kidnapper. As we continue to read verse 2, I promise we'll start going faster. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. It's almost in passing that our narrator reveals a, a nightmare of a situation. I mean, you've got to think about this. You've got to get into this text. You've got to use your imagination. What would it be like to be this little girl? She was Maybe her, her town was completely destroyed. Her home was sacked. Her parents probably killed. And she is dragged off into captivity. And by who? By Naaman. Well, let me let me put it this way: If you were this little girl, uh, Naaman would be someone who was to you on the outside of the outside of the outside of God's grace. And the the contrast between these two two characters, this little girl and Naaman. Are are pretty significant to me. Well, well, she is a little maiden. He is a great man. Well, she is a minor victim in one of his raids. He is a mighty warrior. She is in captivity. He is a commander and in complete control. She has no name. Uh, meanwhile, Naaman's name probably everyone knows. She is an Israelite. He is a Syrian. She has nothing in the eyes of the world. He has everything. And probably the greatest contrast is he has no knowledge of Yahweh. And she does. And because of her knowledge of Yahweh and Yahweh's prophet Elisha, she responds to this difficult situation as an unexpected agent of God's grace. Look at this, verse 3. She said to her mistress, "Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy." Oh, n- notice this. Notice n- notice her her faith. Her unexpected faith. Uh, "Would that my master were just with the prophet" perhaps Naaman has been spending fortunes trying to find a cure trying to please his local gods and nothing has been working and and this little girl uh, in her mind just thinks if only if only Naaman could be with the prophet that is in Syria then he would be healed and notice her unexpected affection for Naaman as well would that my lord There's this humble affection for her master. This is this desire for his healing, for his welfare. There's a lot of interesting questions this proposes. Well, one question is, why would this little girl care about Naaman? How can she give such grace, such favor to him? I propose to you that she can give grace because she has first received grace. She has received God's transforming grace in her own heart. And I would tell you as well that you can only be an agent of God's grace in other people's lives after you have first received God's grace in your own heart. Otherwise, it is impossible She shouldn't be responding this way, but she does. And another question, a little bit more humorous to me, if you ask me, why would Naaman listen to her? A little servant girl from Israel? But that's exactly what he does. It says in verse 4, "...so Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the little girl from the land of Israel." We we get the situation. We get the sense that Naaman's situation was quite desperate. I mean, he's willing to listen to a slave from a captured, defeated country. Usually, defeated countries don't have uh, gods that are very strong. Your country just took out their god, kind of, so to speak. So, why in the world would he go there? Naaman's situation seems desperate. But theologically, we also see this amazing picture of God's grace even in Naaman. Uh, Naaman is an object of God's grace even before he is converted. Or, Or let me put it this way, you require God's grace to get to God's grace. You require God's grace to listen to a message that will introduce you to God's grace you have a stubborn and proud heart that shouldn't listen to God's little servant girl telling you a message about God's grace but because of God's grace in your life you are able to receive God's grace and this message is everywhere in in the bible in the old testament we see this in Deuteronomy 7 Um, 7 verse 6 you don't have to turn there Uh, for uh, Moses tells God's people for you are a people holy to the Lord your God the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth What kind of people are these? Verse 7 says, It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. Verse 8, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of pharaoh king of egypt 1 corinthians 126 says for, for con- Uh, Paul says to those proud Corinthians, "'Consider your calling, brothers. "'Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. "'Not many were powerful. "'Not many were of noble birth. "'But God chose what is foolish in the world "'to shame the wise. "'God chose what is weak in the world "'to shame the strong. "'God chose what is low and what is despised in the world, "'even the things that are not, "'to bring to nothing the things that are, "'so that no human might boast in the presence of God.'" God chose a enemy commander of Syria, and God chose a little girl to administer his grace to him. You know, when I think of Naaman, I am most reminded of Paul, who said in first Timothy thirteen, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but but I received mercy, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in christ jesus the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom i am the foremost no this is the unexpected setting we we wouldn't have picked this we wouldn't have chosen this, but God's grace is on display in unexpected settings. But let me just propose a, another, another scene as we move forward through our story. Uh, the second point, the second lesson we should learn about God's grace is the, 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 the penniless people of God's grace. The, the penniless people. Now, this point, I'm going to warn you, is a tad misleading. Because at first, initially, we're going to see a lot of powerful pennies being floated around. Okay, so but but be patient with me. Verse five and back in Second Kings, verse five, uh, chapter five, verse five. The king of Syria said, "Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel." Uh, so he, being Naaman, went, taking with him ten talents of silver. 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Now, this this um, treasure that Naaman brought with him really is almost incomprehensible in the amount of money it is. Um, someone who, who knows says that one talent of silver would be about 300 years' wages for a common laborer. Um, and that's just one talent. He brought 10 talents, like uh, just... To, to, to basically basically saying he, he brought enough just in silver alone to, to give 1,800 years' wages. That's a lot of money, and I, I did some math. Now, I'm not a mathematician, and all of you guys are probably going to correct me on this. If you were to make, and I really shot low intentionally, if you were to make $35,000 a year, which is poverty level, that was, I don't know, that was, that was a while ago, uh, uh, if you were to make 35000 a year, he, Naaman is carting around in silver alone, $63 million. So this is a massive treasure that he's just carrying with him. Uh, and you ask, why would he bring such a huge sum of money? Well, in in the Syrian world, in the Syrian mind, big important jobs like this one that this prophet had to do for Naaman, required impressive price tags. If you want a god to do something great, you have to pay that prophet, that healer, a large amount of money. And our story continues, verse 6, he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Uh, Naaman my servant that you may cure him of his leprosy now in this letter we see a little flare of intimidation it's kind of like he's saying you better heal this man Uh, that's how big impressive people talk after all I mean you you better heal him otherwise I'm going to come and stomp on you again um also did you notice there there's a a a small assumption here that i find intriguing the king of syria assumes that the king of israel knows what he's talking about you know he's assuming that the king of israel is going to know okay he's looking for he's looking for elisha it's it's kind of like um um the king of Syria is expecting uh, the DMV, DMV line experience. Oh, here's another person that wants the same old thing. We get these people all the time. Here, take a number. There's a lot of people that want this prophet. He can do a lot of great things. Here, take a number and please be seated. But, but apparently the, the king of Israel uh, didn't really respond the way we are thinking. But first let me ask a question. Why, why would the king of Naaman and the king of Syria start with the king of Israel. Well, it's simple logic, right? Like, the, the Syrian king is probably saying to himself, if I were the king of Israel, and I had somebody who could heal leprosy, I would keep that man close by me at all times. Maybe I'm going to be in battle and I lose an arm. I'm going to keep that guy by me at all times. He can heal me instantly. It's simple logic. But... Despite all these impressive people and these blank checks being thrown around, the the king of Israel, he reveals the true penniless spiritual condition of all of these members involved. Verse 7 says, When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Yeah, to, to tear your clothes is, is, is to make a statement of distress, a statement of despair. This is not a typical request. The king of Israel is not used to this. He has no idea what to do with this request. He, he's essentially saying this is something that only God can do. Uh, by the way, historical note, this is probably referring to uh, Jehoram or Joram, the son of Ahab. Uh, we see a little bit about uh, Joram in 1 Kings 3. For one, in the first couple of verses of 1 Kings 3, you see he's not as bad as his father Ahab, but that's not really saying much. Uh, and we also see in, in chapter 3, verse 13, that he had uh, an icy relationship with Elisha the prophet at best. Uh, Elisha basically says, I, I'm not even going to listen to your request, but, but since you're with the, the king of, of, of Judah, I'm going to listen to your request. So he didn't have a great relationship with Elisha, and even if you read in chapter 4, verse 17, you, you'll notice an irony here in the king of Israel's statement the king of israel didn't know about what elisha was doing elisha was literally killing and bringing back to life a little a little a little boy but once again the king of israel has no concept of this he doesn't keep elisha around elisha is not one of those important people in his court he doesn't like elisha he keeps him far away and this reveals the true spiritual um, powerlessness of the people involved in this story. And let me just give you a few uh, theological broadsides, if you will, to show that this also is your penniless position. It says in Psalm 48, verse 7, "...truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit." For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish and and why is man just given to death it's because his spiritual condition is that of death as it tells us in Ephesians 2 you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience and you know when when Nicodemus Nicodemus comes to Jesus with all of his, you know, spiritual regalia, and he he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus is saying, we know that you are from God, we have seen your signs, and we believe who you are, but Jesus stops him right there, and he says in verse 3 of chapter 3 of John, truly. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We all are truly penniless versus God. And and, and how does God interact with penniless people like us? He, He acts towards us by grace. By grace, unmerited favor. And this is exactly how he acts towards Naaman. Verse 8, When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. And notice, surprise, surprise, God is not surprised. God is not worried. A matter of fact, on the other side of your Bible, maybe you can see it in, in 2 Kings 6, verse 12, it, see, it says that this prophet knows the thoughts of the king, even in his bedchamber, he knows everything. God is not surprised. God tells his prophet. And, and why does God act? Why does God send his prophet? Well, that he may know that there is a prophet in israel notice he doesn't say that the king of israel might know that there is a prophet in israel No, that naaman might know that there is a prophet in israel that that little girl's word of faith given to naaman might be proved true and he could see that god uses small people for his purpose and of course we see this this ambition of God, this glorious ambition for his fame and for his honor. God is always, it seems like, on a mission for his glory among all peoples. Not just his people, but all peoples, as it says in uh, Exodus 7, 4. When Moses is talking to Pharaoh, he says, Pharaoh will, or God says, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God is is global in his ambition for his fame and for his honor. Well, back to second Kings five, I envision that Naaman is quite put out by this time and his impatience is growing. I mean, he's probably saying, Who do who do they think I am? Nobody treats a dignitary like me like this. And so probably I picture it in a a very proud, angry huff and a puff. Uh, Naaman goes in verse 9, and came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. He's bringing all of his army with him, this powerful entourage. And notice he stands at the door of Elisha's house house he doesn't enter Elisha's house he is expecting Elisha to come out to him why because that's what peon prophets like Elisha should do come out to the great man bow in worship and by the way this is where we see our our third lesson about God's grace the difficult demands of God's grace. So we have the unexpected setting, the penniless people, and the difficult demands of God's grace. Listen to the simplicity of Elisha's command. Verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to him. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Now, something a little background information you should know about the Jordan River. There is factu- it's factually proven there is more dirt in the Jordan River than there is river in the Jordan River. It is not the most pleasant thing to look at or to be in, and to Naaman, I would suppose it would be a very humbling thing to hear that he has to go to the river of a defeated nation and such a river like that. Verse 11 kind of spells this out. Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Pharpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. Notice how angry he is. Matter of fact, he uses a very emphatic kind of pronoun there come out to me. Who does he think he is? He doesn't know his place. He should come out to me. How, is he, how does he dare send a messenger to me? And notice he also wants um, Elisha to wave his hand. I mean, he's traveled for a long way to see this prophet. He wanted to at least see the man and see the man do his trick. And then notice he also says uh, there are these better rivers, these these rivers in Damascus that are the pride of Damascus. As a matter of fact, these rivers are probably referring to the crystal clear waters um, that were fed from the, the mountain snow runoff of Mount Hermas or Amanus, or as we um, heard about today in Psalm 29, Syrian. Th- these were glorious rivers, crystal clear rivers, and they kind of symbolized the power of that nation as well. Why was this demand that Elisha was giving to Naaman so difficult, so challenging? It was humiliating. But notice also, it was difficult because it was so simple. Uh, pride is a powerful thing. I, you mean I don't have to do anything but just dip seven times and I'm healed? That can't be right. Pride is a crippling thing. It, it can keep you from the grace of God. And of course, we see a, a very important lesson about God's grace in all of this. You must come to God and His grace with humility. You don't come to God with bags and bags of all this merit and this treasure that you can show off and he's impressed. No, you come to God as an outsider of outsiders. You come to God with bags and bags of guilt and sin. And you, you, can't, you can't find a price to pay or a work to perform to get into God's favor. Now, thankfully, and by God's grace, for some strange reason, Naaman keeps listening to the voices of his servants. Verse 13, his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean. Once again, we see this affection of the servant for their master. But notice even more importantly, we see this great word. He has actually said to you, Wash and be clean. I mean, Naaman came to Israel expecting this great price tag, and he encounters great grace. Free favor. Verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Now there's there's a interesting little Picture, theme, carry over there. Notice his flesh becomes like that of a little child. He needed to hear this great word of salvation from a little child. And in the end, he is healed and he is made like a little child. It reminds me of Mark ten fifteen. Uh, Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child shall not enter it. Yeah, it's difficult to mans of following Christ. It requires humility. It requires you to follow something by faith, not by works of your own. You have to come penniless. You have to come childlike to receive God's grace. So there we have the unexpected setting, the penniless people, the difficult demands. Next lesson of God's grace, we have the transformative power of God's grace. Now, once again, uh, theological big picture here. God's grace is, uh, is in every aspect of our salvation. It humbles the proud and stubborn hearts. It helps us hear the word of God hear the word of God's grace, and it doesn't just stop at conversion. It also increases and continues new life in us, and it sanctifies us. This is also what we see about God's grace in the character of Naaman. Verse 15, Then he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company. He came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, now I know there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel." How is Naaman transformed by God's grace? Well, notice his posture is changed. He is not standing outside the door of Elisha's house. He is standing before Elisha. And notice also, he says, No God in all the earth but Israel. This is shocking. This would be shocking for the local king of Israel to say. It's amazing that a Gentile could even think this way. They, they believed in a pantheon of gods. And all of a sudden, his, his whole entire worldview has been completely transformed and shaped. He has a shocking monotheistic faith all of a sudden. I mean, he should be slow to grasp the global implications of this healing. But he is fast. He is faster than the king of Israel, than the king of Judah, than a lot of Israelites in his day. He has understood that there is no other God in the universe but the God of Israel. And and look at the transformation in his life. Verse seventeen. Please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, uh, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any god, but the Lord. And people speculate why he wanted to. Um, mule loads it's interesting to me that Elisha doesn't correct him here and say come on now Naaman I thought you said you'd serve God only stop being so superstitious leave the dirt there but he doesn't say any of that he lets Naaman go and and I think we see we see the transformation of Naaman Um, at, at first he was angered by the thought of dipping his little big toe in the Jordan River and now he is using two valuable mules to carry dirt back to his house Probably wants to use that dirt to make an altar or something like that. Once, once again, Elisha doesn't correct him. And we see something else that's very interesting here in verse 18. He says, In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on, on my arm, I, I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Now, Rimon was the god of thunder, the god of war in Syria. Obviously, Naaman probably used to serve him, but now he knows that Yahweh is the only god of the universe, and now he's asking for pardon. Naaman is conscious of something, and he is greatly concerned that Yahweh not be offended as he continues to try to be faithful in his job. Once again, I just want to show you the, the, just the, the transformation in a moment that has happened in Naaman. He, he's talking about uh, this Rimon God as if he is nothing but a statue. Hey, this doesn't mean anything. I know he's not a real God. I'm just going to go and serve my master. It doesn't mean anything to my heart, and I want to make sure that Yahweh knows that. He, by the way, sounds very much, in my mind, like the Jews that Paul addressed that had no problem with eating meat in temples in 1 Corinthians 8, Uh, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, Therefore, as eating the food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, uh, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, We are no worse off if we do not eat, or no better off if we do. I I think Naaman sounds a lot like a monotheistic Jew. Instant transformation in his mind and in his heart. And notice what's most important, where we should follow our lead, is from Elisha, who says, Go in peace. You are in right standing with God. Do not fear. So God's grace works in transformative power. We see this in Ephesians 2 where we see we are his workmanship. Yes, saved by grace. It's a gift of God, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And we see this in Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the transformation that has begun to work in Naaman right now before our eyes, and it is a work of God's grace. So we have the unexpected setting, the penniless people, difficult demands, transformative power. You may have noticed that I skipped something massively significant. We have the free gift of God's grace in verse 16. The free gift of God's grace. Naaman says to Elisha before this whole mule dirt issue and temple issue, he says, So accept now a present from your servant. But what does Elisha say in verse 16? As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Now, notice this. For all of Naaman's growth, he is still young. He still has these, these, these thinking patterns like a Syrian. Yes, he believes there's only one God, but he still approaches that God like a Syrian would. You need to pay. You need to pay back your God for such a favor like this. It's not free. It always costs you something. But Elisha wants Naaman to learn a valuable, important, essential lesson about God's grace. It is that you can't pay back God for his grace. You can't afford it. You can't afford God's grace. You can't buy divine favor. Yahweh is different than all the other gods, all the other religions in the world. His price tag is too expensive. You must operate towards God by faith. You must receive grace, unmerited favor from God as it says in ephesians but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. There we have the unexpected setting penniless people, the difficult demands, the transformative power, the, the free gift of God's grace. But sadly, this is not the end of the story. And, and you can't really finish the story without a, a heavy final point. The heavy cost of God's grace. The heavy cost of God's grace. Now, we see this servant of Elisha, Gehazi appears. Now when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought... I'll just point out a few contrasts, just similar to the the contrast between the servant girl and Naaman, a few contrasts between Gehazi. If, If you were Gehazi, you are an Israelite, he is a Syrian, you are a slave, he is a mighty master, you are poor, he is wealthy. Well, actually, your poverty is really relative to your master, and your master just sent off this fortune just to make a spiritual illustration. You have probably grown up your entire life knowing about Yahweh, maybe even from your youngest days, but Naaman just learned his first lesson about Yahweh a few seconds ago. You are on the inside of the inside of the inside of God's grace. You are the servant of the prophet of God, Elisha. Well, Naaman is on the outside of the outside of the outside of God's grace. Notice what Gehazi says when he sees Naaman, the Syrian, leave as the Lord lives. I will run after him and get something from him Notice how he refers to both Elisha and to the Syrian. He's thinking, why did Elisha not take advantage of this situation? We could have used this wealth. This man deserves a hefty price tag for God's favor. My master, this Naaman. He seems to not only despise Naaman, he seems to also despise his master. Uh, He's probably saying to him, he doesn't remember that this Naaman is our great and bitter enemy who has caused so much suffering. And maybe he's thinking, man, I've been a good and faithful servant and Israelite all of my days. This Naaman can't just swoop in on God's favor, free of charge, as the Lord lives. And then, Gehazi, did you see it? He starts off with this spiritual plan, this spiritual sounding plan. And then the next couple of verses, he has this spiritual sounding lie that he gives to Naaman. And then he gets twice as much as he's expecting. And then he hides the stash in his house and then returns before his master in a very spiritual looking posture. Verse 25, he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. There's an amazing dramatic reversal. Gehazi is now seen as the one who is truly on the outside of the outside of God's grace and spiritual reality. By the end of the story, the true Syrian, the one on the outside of God's grace, was the Israelite servant. And the true spiritual Israelite was the Syrian kidnapper. So what should we, what should we make of this story? Um, In a very real sense, this is a sobering warning about greed, about the spiritual pride and belief that you can somehow buy God's grace and and maybe use it to your advantage. Now, now I, I want you to leave, to leave this place, not just... Sober and somber, I want you to leave this place with doxological joy in who your God is because of the story you see about him in his word tonight. So let me just propose uh, two foundations for doxological praise from this passage. The first thing you should notice the first thing you should come away thrilled in God for is God is jealous for the global ambition of his grace. God has always aimed for the good news to go to the nations. God is angered by people or by institutions that misinterpret, misapply, or teach false things about his favor or grace. You don't withhold it. You don't charge for it. God is jealous to fulfill all of the promises that he has purposed in the Abrahamic covenant to bless the world. Genesis 12, 3 says, um, God says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed this has been God's ambition all along for his glory and we see the the storyline move forward as as close to our passage as 1 kings 8 where Solomon builds his temple and then gives this long prayer to the Lord and in one aspect of this prayer he says likewise when a foreigner who is not your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Name. This is God's plan throughout Scripture. They're going to hear of my greatness, of my worth, of my character, and they are going to come. And and we see this happen when Israel is faithful. The Queen of Sheba shows up. But notice 2 Kings 5. Israel is not so faithful anymore. But God still has ambitions for His grace to spread. Even when His people falter and fail in their purposes, God is not failing. He is still wooing and wowing a Gentile commander. That gives me great encouragement. God is ambitious for His glory. That's why you're here. Because God, in his sovereign grace, has chosen you and called you? And a second doxological reason for praise, to be redundant. God is jealous. God is jealous for the great price of his grace. This should cause us to have joy that God takes the price tag of grace so seriously because it shows us how immense the riches are that we possess in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The the price tag for God's grace must not be distorted. It must not be changed. Why? Because it's too great. Right? When when you charge someone for God's grace, when, when you are given a chance to pay god back for his grace or earn his merit or if you are somehow duped into thinking that you have somehow become favorable to god through something you have done in your life you shame the great price of god's grace and you you blind yourself and you blind those around you to the costly cost of god's grace When we say God is gracious, we we are not saying he is sentimental about us. We are not saying he is trivial with our sin, as Psalm 49 tells us truly, no man can ransom another or give to God. The price of his life or the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. When we say that, we are, that God is gracious, what are we saying? We're saying that God is responding in a certain way to our sin. Sin is lethal violent rebellion towards God, and God's glory demands a response that is lethal and violent. But God is responding to all of our sin by not treating us as we deserve, but treating someone else as we deserve. And when we look at the cross that's where we learn about god's grace that's why it's so important that naaman doesn't pay a thing for god's favor this at the cross is god's real and raw violent and bloody response to my sin your sin this is God's grace, not treating you as your sins deserve, but treating Christ as your sins deserve. It would be wrong of me not to quote Martin Luther right here. The heart of his theology that in Christ Jesus, God has himself given himself utterly and without reserve for us Martin Luther Martin Luther writes this read with great emphasis these words me for me Accustom yourself to accept and to apply to yourself this me with certain faith the words our us for us ought to be written in gold letters the man who does not believe them is not a Christian for Naaman It was more than just having spots cleansed. It was God treating him with unmerited favor. It was God, like Abraham, his father in the faith, counting his faith as righteousness because of the death of Christ. And for you, when you come to God's grace... Through faith in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for God's glory alone, you are coming on the same merit, on Christ's merit alone. The hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leopard's spot and melt the heart of stone, for nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Have you realized that your sins are gone because of Christ this night, and there is nothing you can do to repay that debt. Let's pray, Father in heaven, we thank you for this this hour of worship where we get to look to your word we We look at these truths of the gospel that ring clear through this passage in the Old Testament and our our hearts thump with, with new joy and new life and new delight and new worship in you, not because of anything good in us, but because of all the grace that you have freely given because you have laid all of the judgment for our sin on Christ. Oh, please, please continue your transforming work through this message. In your name, amen.